But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went, and he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. All right, I know I just read Matthew chapter 2, but we're going to begin in Isaiah 53. So if you want to find in your Bible Isaiah chapter 53, we're going to look at the first 10 verses uh, a bit of Isaiah 53. And here's, here's how the first part of Isaiah 53, 1 reads. Here's what it says. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Question mark. Whenever you are encounter a question, you're supposed to do what? You're supposed to answer it. You know, you know this is a parent. Yes, who made this mess? <laughs> and what's the answer? You get no answer. I asked you a question. Okay, and all of a sudden, uh, you want an answer. So here's the question that is being asked of us. Who has believed what he has heard from us? That's a direct question. Now, Isaiah was writing to some people long ago in Israel, but the question still applies to us because the prophecy is fulfilled in our time. And the question in, who has believed? Who has believed? And why is he asking this question, who has believed? Isaiah is preparing to describe the Savior. He is preparing to describe the Messiah, the Anointed One, uh, the King, the Lord, who is going to come and save his people. However, the description that Isaiah is going to use to describe the Savior is so different than what the people of Israel would expect he starts by asking, can you believe it? So the question at the beginning of the passage is intended to tell us something that's going in our heart. Our expectations aren't going to be met. The question is, are we going to believe it? Who has believed what he has heard? Can you believe this kind of Savior? Can you believe this Savior? So very briefly this morning... And there's a lot going on in Isaiah 53 and Matthew chapter 2, but we're just going to look at three ways that Jesus is unexpected. Three ways that Jesus and his birth are uh, unexpected. So the first thing, Isaiah 53, the first three verses, can you believe it? Jesus was a nobody. Jesus was a nobody. Isaiah 53, 1 through 3. Here's what it says. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 2. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. The Savior was a nobody. Why does this matter? There was an author, and he was a well-known author, and he was a part of a, 
symposium of writers, and he was on a panel of writers being interviewed, and uh, the question was asked of him because he had written some fairly popular novels, and they were adventure and sort of crime spy novels, and, and most of his protagonists were uh, these male characters who swoop in and save the day, and he was asked, how do you, when you're getting ready to write a new book, how do you think about your primary character, your main character? What do you think about when you're trying to decide what this character is uh, going to be like? And he said, well, it's very simple. I write main characters that women are attracted to and men want to be. You don't know if you should laugh or not. You're like, <laughs> he was serious. And, and he uh, caused great offense in the room, just like some of you. It's like, well, that sounds, wait, no, I think that's wrong. I don't know if it's right or wrong, right? So he caused great offense, and all these writers and these interviewers were uh, deeply offended. That How can you be so shallow? How can you be so, uh, how can your writing lack so much nuance and interest and in, uh, looking at a wide range of how a hero could present himself? Why haven't you thought about different experiences of, of different people that your hero might be presented in different ways, and his answer was very simple. You know what his answer was? I like to write books that sell. <laughs> and when I think of a main character that you will buy by the dozens from Walmart's book section, this is the main character you will read about. And certainly his cynicism and his shallowness, uh, maybe that offends our, our sensibilities, but we have to admit he's onto something, isn't he? We want a hero who looks good saving. We don't want just a savior. We want a savior who saves us with a bit of style and a bit of panache. Jesus is none of these things. Jesus is a nobody, Isaiah tells us. And the point here is, can we believe in a savior who is a nobody? Do we want a Savior who looks good saving, or do we want Jesus? Because we need to understand something about Jesus. Jesus doesn't need us to like him. He just saves us. He is God. There is nothing we can offer him that he needs. He, as God, has everything he already needs in himself. Jesus doesn't need us to like him. Jesus doesn't need us to admire him. Jesus doesn't need anything from us. Jesus just saves us. Can you believe it? The Savior was a nobody. Look back at Isaiah chapter 53, and let's pay attention to how he's described. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. This is the middle of verse 2 of Isaiah 53. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Remember back to how Israel chose their first king, King Saul. What did they love about King Saul? His temperament, certainly, no. His competence, no, absolutely not. He was incompetent on a level that hadn't been seen before. He was spirituality. He was a spiritual giant. No, he was not. What did they love about King Saul? He was tall and handsome. Israel had two qualifications for the king. Be tall and handsome. All other things they're not really that concerned about. And he fit the bill. He was tall and handsome and completely useless as a king. King David, although he was chosen by God, King David, though, was described in similar terms. Although he was the youngest and maybe the smallest of the family, he was described as ruddy in appearance. And anybody who could fight off a lion or a bear 
looked like a warrior. So King David and King Saul and King David's son Solomon, if these guys walked into a room, you'd say, now that guy's a king. Now that guy is a king. Jesus walks into a room, and you're going to ask him if he needs a food basket for the holidays. You're going, to need, you're going to ask him if he needs a place to stay. He had no form. He had no majesty. Can we believe a Savior like Jesus who has no form and has no majesty? Look what it says at the end of verse 2. He had no beauty that we should desire him. Here's what Jesus does for us as our Savior who was a nobody. He offers nothing desirable other than forgiveness. He offers nothing desirable other than forgiveness. If you want something from Jesus other than forgiveness, you will not desire Jesus. That is the point of Isaiah 53. What he offers that is desirable is forgiveness from our rebellion. If we want something other than forgiveness from Jesus, Jesus will not be desirable. He isn't desirable to people who want something from Christ other than forgiveness for your sin. So here's the problem with Jesus. To desire what Jesus offers, we have to admit we need forgiveness. Who likes admitting they're wrong? None of us. We want a Savior that affirms I'm right. Or that if I am wrong, I'm wrong in the nicest of ways. That's not what he offers. He offers forgiveness to people who have sinned so badly, they will die for it. Which is everybody. But this is what he offers. So what is our response to a Savior who is a nobody and who is desirable only because he offers forgiveness, look at the end of verse 3. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. We called him a loser. God of the universe, you came to planet Earth, and all you could be bothered to bring was forgiveness. I've got a top 10 list of problems in the universe that could be solved right now, and you bring forgiveness. That means you missed the point, Jesus. And we esteemed him not. He was sorrowful. He was grief-stricken. Look what it says at the beginning of verse 3. He was rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He was one from whom men hide their faces. So people saw him and they're like, don't look over there. You might look this way. And this was finally culminated at the cross. At the cross where he was completely rejected by the people of his day. And people didn't even want to look at him because the disappointment in the Savior that we were given was so extreme. Our sin on the cross with him. Can you believe it? The Savior was a nobody. This nobody is worth believing in if you have sin you need forgiveness for. If you need forgiveness... If you are saddled with guilt and shame for your sin, you will take a nobody who will forgive you. Because what Jesus can do is forgive all your sin. But if you need a Savior that is going to do something other than forgive, you're going to have to look somewhere else. Because that's what Jesus brings. Can you believe it? 
the Savior, was a nobody. Here's what we need to do. We need to turn to him and face him. We need to esteem him for what he, what he is and who he is. How do we esteem Christ? First, we acknowledge we need his grace and forgiveness. We acknowledge that we have rebelled against God to such a degree he should cast us away for all time. And the way we esteem, his, the way we esteem him is acknowledge that our sin and our rebellion separated us from him and recognize that he has brought the forgiveness we need. Because he is the Savior who forgives. And we esteem him when we see our predicament the same way that he sees our predicament, which is sin that brought us destruction. Can you believe it? The Savior was a nobody, but he was a nobody who forgives all our sin. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Jesus was not impressive in his appearance. It also turns out he was from an unimpressive place. Matthew chapter 2, we already read it. What had happened is Jesus had been born. Uh, Herod had found out from uh, the Magi that Jesus had been born, and Jesus met uh, the biblical uh, prophecy for the Messiah. He was born in Bethlehem. He was born at the right time. There was a star in the sky. Uh, the, the king of the Jews had been born. The Messiah had come. And Herod had attempted to destroy Jesus and his family. And so Jesus and his family, Joseph and Mary, had fled to Egypt. And they'd been living in Egypt. Over time, Herod dies. And so Joseph has a dream, and he is told, you can move back to Israel. So Joseph and Jesus and Mary are making their way back to Israel, and they had plans on living in Judea, Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. But Herod's son had become ruler of the area of Judea, and they knew they were in, still in significant danger. So they moved north, up to the Sea of Galilee. If you wonder where that, is, where that is, in the back of your Bible, they have some maps, and you can look exactly where it is. But it is north, a pretty decent walk north. And Nazareth is up near the Sea of Galilee, and, and this guy, Herod's son, didn't have any jurisdiction up there. And so instead of settling, settling in the noble town of David, Bethlehem, they settle in Nazareth. Now, when you say Nazareth, if you're a first century Jew, you go, ooh. Nobody, like, nobody likes Nazareth. So they end up settling in Nazareth. So here's the second question. Can you believe it? The Savior came from nowhere. So there's a saying. I don't know if it's a good saying, but it's a saying nonetheless. We consider some places the wrong side of the tracks. So-and-so came from the wrong side of the tracks. Now, regardless of what side of the tracks you're from, the other side is the wrong side of the tracks. That's how that works. But we make some assumptions about somebody from there. We make some assumptions about their character. We make some assumptions about their upbringing, their education, and their religious bent. We identify where people are from, and we make assumptions about who they are and what they are like. And in first century Israel, to be from Nazareth is to be nobody going nowhere fast. To be more than a cast-off, to be a reject. So Jesus is from the wrong side of the tracks. Jesus is from nowhere. Can you believe in a Savior who is from nowhere? Here's the point we need to recognize in our own hearts. On the one hand, we want a Savior who is glorious in appearance. On the other hand, we also need to recognize we want a Savior we can be proud of. We want a Savior we can write home about. We want a Savior that we can put a bumper sticker on our car and people, oh, oh, you're with, 
You're with Jesus. Good on you, mate. Or however you might say it. We want someone we can, uh, we can be proud of and feel good about. But can you believe it? Jesus is a nobody from nowhere. He's from Nazareth. Nobody is proud to be associated with somebody from Nazareth. Jesus doesn't need our honor. Jesus doesn't need us to be proud of him. Jesus doesn't need us to look up to him because he's from the right place, connected with the right people, with the right network and the right connections and the right resources. Jesus doesn't need our honor. Jesus just saves us because Jesus is a nobody from nowhere. Look at John chapter 1, verse 46. I think it's going to be up on the screen. Look at what Nathaniel says about Jesus. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Why is he asking this question? Is he asking for information? Hey, I was just curious. Based on the current socioeconomic situation, the educational background, can anything good come out of Nazareth? No, he's not asking that. What's his assumption? No. He's asking the question because he's making a point. Another way he could ask this question is, nothing good can come out of Nazareth. Next. Why is he making this statement? Look at it. If you want to, in John chapter 1, verse 43. Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip. And he said to Philip, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the same city that Andrew and his brother Peter were from. Now Philip, who was from Bethsaida, went to Nathanael and said to Nathanael, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote. What did he just say? Philip just told Nathanael, we found the Messiah. God in the flesh is here. The Savior is here. And Nathaniel would go, oh, interested. Continue. It is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Oh, never mind. It's not him. This is, this is Nathaniel's response. Can anything good come from Nazareth? You've done a great job in your Bible study. You understand Isaiah very well. Good job, Philip. The problem is you don't understand Nazareth very well. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. No Savior is going to be a nobody from Nazareth. Jesus came and saw Nathanael. He said, hey, look, here's an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. This guy doesn't tell any lies. He doesn't like people from Nazareth, and he'll tell you to do his face. Your face, he doesn't like people from Nazareth. Jesus then reminds Nathanael, being God, that he saw Nathanael under a fig tree, and Nathanael says, this is God himself. I've always wondered this when Jesus makes this revelation that he saw Nathanael under the fig tree, what was Nathaniel doing under that fig tree? That he was like, oh, no, you're God. I don't know. We don't know. I'm just kidding. So the assumption is nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Jesus' journey to Nazareth was one of danger and one where he and his family had no power and no influence. They were driven out of their ancestral home of Bethlehem by Herod, they tried to return to their ancestral home, were driven out by Herod's son. So with no power, no influence, no political connections, no family connections, they're driven up to a backwater town where he will have absolutely no chance of a good reputation. And this is precisely the plan. This isn't a hiccup in the plan. This is precisely the plan. Can you believe it? The Savior came from nowhere on purpose because his plan was to reveal God's nature his plan was to say I have come to save nobody's from nowhere 
I have come from the wrong side of the tracks to save people from the wrong side of the tracks that they might have connection with God himself. The assumption would be the Savior, God in the flesh, would come to save the high and mighty, the bigwigs, the politically connected, the religiously influential, the handsome and charming. And Jesus comes as a nobody from nowhere to make it quite clear he has come to be recognized as Savior of other nobodies from nowhere. This was the fulfillment of his plan. The question is, can we believe in a Savior who would come from someplace like Nazareth? I can maybe put it this way. We tend to want a Savior who is super awesome. That's a theological term, super awesome. It's not. I just made it up, right? We want, to have, we want a Savior who is super awesome. But the, what it reveals about our heart, to want a super awesome, important, powerful Savior, a, a, a somebody from somewhere, reveals what I think I am. If I need an important Savior, it's because I'm important. If I need a somebody Savior, it's because I think I'm somebody. If I need Jesus to be somebody that matters, it's because I think I'm the kind of person that should only be saved by somebody that matters. But here is the truth. Jesus didn't just simply come to the wrong side of the tracks when he lived in Nazareth. Jesus came to the wrong side of the tracks when he landed on planet Earth. The problem is we think on planet Earth there's a right side of the tracks. There's two, tra there's two sides of the tracks. There is God in his holiness and the rest of the universe that we ruined in our rebellion. And Jesus going to Nazareth is not merely appealing to the lowest among us. Get Jesus going to Nazareth is his appeal to all of us to recognize we're the lowest among us. The issue is we think that where we're from is slightly better than Nazareth. When you come from the glories of heaven, it's all Nazareth. The whole planet is on the wrong side of the tracks. And the question is whether or not I will recognize and you will recognize I need a Savior like me. You need a Savior like you. Someone from nowhere. Somebody from the wrong side of the tracks who can save you and connect you with somebody who matters. God in his holiness and righteousness. Jesus was a nobody. Jesus was from nowhere. He was from, of all places, Nazareth. Turn back to Isaiah 53. I want to keep you uh, flipping in your Bible. Helps you stay awake. Jesus was a nobody. Jesus from nowhere. Finally, can you believe it? He was the Savior we needed. Isaiah 53. I'm going to read it, verses 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 5, listen. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Can you believe it? He was the Savior we needed the one who brought the means by which we could be forgiven his own death. 
This was in the news a while ago. Uh, a guy was on the beach, and he saw a woman out in the water struggling. And she wasn't uh, able to get herself uh, above the water. You could tell she was drowning. So he looked over, and there was a lifeguard tower, but there was no lifeguard in it. Not sure if the lifeguard was off helping someone else, the lifeguard was on break, or what it was. But he, thought, he did the math, no lifeguard, lady drowning. Uh, and he happened to be someone who was trained in swim rescue. So he said, well, I'll go out and I'll bring her to shore. So he swims out, grabs her, brings her to shore. By the time she's uh, to shore, she's not breathing. Uh, he does uh, uh, whatever you do to get somebody breathing after they've drowned. Is it CPR? I don't know. I, I, I call for help. Um, <laughs> you're going to die. Um, so CPR gets the water out of her lungs, and, and she survived. Uh, she had breathed in water, uh, and so she, she did have to go to the hospital, get some treatment. She got an infection, got some pneumonia, had some health challenges from her near-drowning experience. Uh, but she uh, survived. So what she did uh, to thank the gentleman was she had her attorney, um, you see where it's going, don't you? Send him a letter, and, and she sued him for not saving her well enough. You think I'm kidding? This is new. You can Google it. Some of you are, oh, really? So she sued him. She said a couple of things. She said she, he should have responded quicker. If he would have come out into the water quicker, I would have got this infection. Then when he did get me on shore, he didn't do CPR properly. Uh, and, and, you know, I probably wouldn't got this infection and have been under so long if he would have cleared the airway a little bit uh, faster. And so she sued him. She was glad that she wasn't dead. But if you're going to save my life, save it properly. There are certain procedures. You certainly should have read the manual. Uh, I mean, that's unbelievable. She wanted a savior. She wanted something. I want this particular kind. This is the kind I want. I want this kind who will save me, but uh, also uh, keep in mind my schedule for later this week. I, I can't go to the hospital. I've got tea with my friends. What's the point here? Jesus is the savior we need. We need saving from our sins. Is he the savior we want is a different question. Look what it says he saved us from and how. He has borne our griefs and our sorrows. What are our griefs and our sorrows? The griefs and our sorrows are the results of our rebellion and our sin. God says, here's how you have a relationship with me. We're lousy at it. He says some very simple things. Don't worship things that aren't me. Uh, don't lie. Don't uh, envy. Don't murder. Don't kill people. You know, some very simple, straightforward concepts that we're just absolutely terrible at doing. Uh, you know, so um, the, we carry these griefs, we carry these sorrows, we carry the result of our sin in broken relationships, but most importantly, our relationship with God has been completely destroyed because he is holy and righteous and just, and he cannot be with and have a relationship with those who rebel against him. And so what it says here is Jesus, who is God in the flesh, he carried the weight of our sorrows. He carried the weight of our griefs. And look at what it says in Isaiah 53, 4. He was smitten by God and afflicted. He was smitten by God and afflicted, meaning he carried our sins upon himself. He took those to the cross, and then God afflicted Christ for the affliction that should have been borne on us. Because Christ had our sin on him, the punishment, the punishment for our sin goes on him. And look what it says in verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. That sentence caused all kinds of problems in the first century. All kinds of religious Jews were trying to figure out how the Christians convinced the Roman soldiers to stab him with a spear. 
Because obviously they had been reading Isaiah, and they were doing everything they could to make sure it was fulfilled. That's how accurate this has been. But what it is telling us is our sin went on the cross with Jesus. The punishment for our sin went on to Jesus. Jesus bore it all, so therefore there's no punishment left for us. We can have right relationship with God. He was our substitute. He carried our griefs, our sorrows. He carried the punishment we should have received. He carried our sins so that we could have peace with God forever. What do we do when we discover Jesus came and he saved us from our sin by taking our sin and punishment to the cross and overcoming our death through resurrection? We have our attorney draft a letter and we sue him because I wanted something else. I wanted a better job. I wanted a better spouse. I wanted a better family situation. I wanted hunger in the world to be solved. I wanted a better political situation. Jesus, you're great at the sin thing. You're lousy at fixing the world problem thing. And so we sue our Savior because he didn't save us in the way we wanted to be saved. We got lots of stuff we want God to show up and do right now. I mean, right now. And all he had the gall to do was show up and forgive us for our sin. So the issue is, do we receive the Savior for who he is, the Savior we actually needed, or do we sue him over the fact that he wasn't the Savior we wanted? Look what Jesus said, and it was predicted in Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2. The heading to Psalm 22 says this, To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. So as we're reading these verses, you need to have the melody to the doe of a dawn playing in your head. If you don't know that melody, neither does anybody else. So that works out. So you can actually have any melody playing in your head. Here's what it says, Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sound familiar? Have you heard that anywhere else? That's Jesus. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Jesus cried these words on the cross so that we would never have to say them again. He cried these words on the cross so we could know through faith that that connection with God between you and God will never be severed again. The question is, do, is that what you want from your Savior? Or is there something else that you want from your Savior? Well, you're like all of us. You want lots of things from Jesus besides forgiveness. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 6. Isaiah 53, verse 6. He describes what we're like. All we like sheep have gone astray. Who's gone astray? All of us. This is what's great about the Bible. If you wonder if other people are just like you, you can say, hey, you go astray all the time. And say this to somebody this week. Hey, I was reading my Bible. I discovered you go astray a lot. And they go, well, what do you know? What have you heard? Say, yeah, just read my Bible. The Spirit do its thing. All right. So all we like sheep have gone astray. Who, who has gone astray? All of us have gone astray. But certainly that was fixed when you found Jesus, right? Anybody? No, our, we're not home yet. That strayness, it's not fixed yet. We're going to get there, and Jesus is faithful even for sheep like us. But the fact is, all us like sheep have gone astray. Jesus says sheep just like us. We're not home yet, and that's still in there, isn't it? 
we have turned every one of us to his own way. Jesus shows up and says, here's my way. Forgiveness of sins, life eternal, I will give you the kingdom of God. And we say, boy, that is really, a really good. But you know, is there any way my car could run this week? Now, I'm fine with you asking God to make your car run this week. Totally okay with that. You should ask God to make your car run this week. When your car does run this week, you should give God the credit for your car running this week. However, Jesus did not leave heaven and die on the cross so that you might have a car that runs this week. Or whatever it is that you say, if God doesn't show up in this way, I don't think there's God. Jesus says, I showed up for the reason to mend the relationship between you and God forever so that you would no longer turn to your own way, but you would trust that your sin is covered. Look what it says at the end of Isaiah 53, 6. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin, the rebellion, the disobedience of us all. He has laid on Christ the sin of all of us. Our fallen hearts stray. Our fallen hearts turn their own way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is moving toward us. We tend to move away from him, but he is the Savior we need. Look at verse 7 of Isaiah 53. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter is silent, so was he. Verse 9. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Where was he buried? Who bar who's tomb? Joseph of Arimathea. What, how's the Bible describe Joseph? Rich man. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was, he has put him to grief. Listen. When his soul makes an offering for guilt... He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. Wait a minute. What just happened? The guy dies, and then it says his days are prolonged. What does that mean? What has to happen? He has to raise from the dead. So here in Isaiah 53, we have the start, straying sheep. We have the middle, a Savior who dies and a Savior who is raised from the dead. What Jesus is offering you, is forgiveness for everything you've ever done and anything you ever will do and guaranteeing that by faith in Christ, you will live forever with him as an heir to his kingdom. What else is there to want from him? That's what the Bible confronts us with. Can you believe it? He is the Savior we needed. He is the Savior that was kind enough to only give us the absolute best thing he had to offer. What you and I need to wrestle with is the reality of the fact is we want a Savior that answers a number of other questions besides what he came to answer. We have things that are important, needs that we have, troubles we're facing, and we are concerned that Jesus won't answer these questions. But if Jesus has answered the question for eternity, these other things can fall to the side. Can you believe that Jesus was the Savior we need it. A couple of things you must believe to understand that Jesus is the Savior. We need it. Number one, you have to believe that you actually disobeyed God. And some of you are saying, well, I don't know that I have. Again, I always say this because the, the Holy Spirit has put two people in your life uh, to help you know you're a sinner. Number one, the Holy Spirit himself convicts you of sin. Number two, the Holy Spirit tells your spouse. 
where your sin is. So if you want to make the case that you don't need a Savior from your sin, all I'm asking you to do is ask your spouse. And, uh, and uh, of course, you're going to put them in a very... Some of you are going to say, stop telling them to do that. I, I'm, I'm lying to my, my wife and my husband, you're saying. I don't want to keep... Oh, no, you're fine. You're good. Um, okay. We need to recognize we need a Savior for our sin. How do we get around that? We do a couple of things. No more. Some of us say, you know... Um, I've sinned, certainly I've done bad things, not, nothing that bad that requires a Savior. And what that fails to recognize is how holy God is and how perfect God is. God is not a God, and I, I say this, I, I, don't, I don't know how to say this without being impolite. Um, God is not a God to be trifled with. When the Bible says we should fear the Lord, it's, it's because He's God. Every time He shows up, people freak out. And then we should have a sense. God is God. We are not in any way that we have met, rendered our relationship with God requires his intervention, requires him to save us. Secondly, uh, maybe we don't think we've done anything bad enough to require a savior. It also reveals that we tend to understand, un, underestimate how damaging our sin is. Just think of any situation in your life where maybe you said something a little bit out of line and you hurt somebody's feelings. And then you find out later how bad their feelings were really hurt. You ever had that happen? Uh, me either then. Um, <laughs> and then you say, well, the, the, you go through a number of phases when you discover, oh, they were that offended. Oh, gee. And the first thing you do, they are really, they're really oversensitive. They need to get a thicker skin, maybe a sense of humor, you know, simmer down. And then we talk to them, we go, oh, oh, you took it that way. Oh, you're right. That, that was awful for me to say. I had no idea that was your experience. And if we do that with the things, with how we wrong people in our life, what are we doing in terms of God? He understands how significant our sin is. When we realize how much forgiveness we need, we recognize we need the Savior that he gave us. Can you believe it? Three things. The Savior was a nobody. Jesus is awesome because he saves the not awesome by becoming a nobody. Can you believe in a Savior lame enough to save us? Or do you need an awesome Savior who only saves awesome people? Can you believe it? Secondly, Jesus is king, but his royal court is all people from the wrong side of the tracks. Because everybody's from the wrong side of the tracks. So Jesus is in fact king, but all of his royal court, all of the people in him by faith are all people from the wrong side of the tracks. So if you're looking for a kingdom with a king who is awesome, with people who are awesome, wrong kingdom. He is a king who goes to the wrong side of the tracks to get people from the wrong side of the tracks. However, if you have realized by the spirit you're from the wrong side of the tracks, then he is your king. And he will save you into his glory. Can you believe it? He is a savior from nowhere. And finally, can you believe it? He is a save, the savior we needed. He rescues all who need to be forgiven. He rescues none who don't need to be forgiven. He rescues all who need to be forgiven who will put their faith in him. All. No matter what you've done, he will rescue you. He will not rescue a single person who doesn't think they need forgiveness or doesn't think they need the cross. He is 
the one who gave his life for the worst of us, which is all of us. Can you believe it?